Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Well, welcome again to Bible Center Church. I'm Matt Friend, the senior pastor. If this is your first time with us, welcome to you. Uh, If you've been at church a long time, welcome to you as well. It's great to have you here. In a moment, we're going to jump into Isaiah chapter 58. So I invite you to go ahead and turn there, Isaiah chapter 58, uh, starting in verse 1. We'll also take a second to welcome those who are joining us online. Stephen tells me that each week, uh, more and more of you join us online around the city, around the state, and even far beyond that. So thank you for being with us. We'd love to have you here uh, next time you're in the Charleston area. Isaiah chapter 58 is one of my favorite chapters. Uh, My kids will tell you that I have a different favorite chapter, usually several times a month. Uh, But this really is, like for real, one of my favorite chapters. About 15 years ago, I was preaching in Carthage, Tennessee, uh, which would be just east of Nashville, in a little town called Riddleton, if anybody knows where Riddleton, Tennessee is. And as an evangelist, about 15 years ago, I was preaching. And before the service began, I went out back in the woods and was just looking for uh, something, something from the Lord, just felt like my soul was dry. Uh, You've probably been there. And so the Lord just seemed like kind of one of those Sergeant York moments, if you've ever seen Sergeant York. The Lord just kind of opened it right up to Isaiah 58. And even though I had read it in my yearly Bible reading many times, that night, Isaiah 58 became one of my favorite chapters. And this past week, I couldn't get it off my heart. Several of our elders and I uh, went to Indianapolis for a conference and we heard like a thousand sermons, and uh, they were all taking notes on the sermons, and we were studying doctrine, and, and uh, I tried to hide it, but most of the time I was actually like writing and writing this sermon on Isaiah 58. So I'm really excited to preach it, and I believe this passage has a lot to say for our church at such a time as this in our history. So if you stand with me out of respect for the Bible, Isaiah chapter 58, starting in verse 1. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For a day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Love this. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Isn't it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then 
your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do, not, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness. Your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. For the sake of unity and focus, every organization needs a mission statement and a vision statement. Now, mission and vision statements sometimes get uh, overlap, but really they're two different things. A mission is what's, what is, I guess you could say, in common with all organizations in the same market. So let's, churches is the, the only market that I know and really that I understand. And so I know that churches all have about the same mission. Our mission is to glorify God by producing more maturing followers of Jesus. So every church has the same mission, even if they say it a little different ways. Some people say our mission is to make disciples, and that would also be an accurate description of a church's mission. But a vision statement's a little different. A vision statement is what is particular or what is unique to a particular organization at a particular point in time. And so a vision might be, okay, yeah, how are you going to make disciples? Or what does that look like in your area, in your time? So we say here at Bible Center that our vision is to be for the gospel and for the city. We sometimes say it's to saturate the city with the gospel. That's what we believe our vision is in 2019. And we believe that's what God's calling us to do over the next couple decades with all of our hearts. So our vision is to be for the gospel and for the city. And what I wanna do this morning is really answer three questions. So if you're taking notes, the notes are in your bulletin. You can also follow along or on the app or you can simply just write these out. The sermon is divided into three sections and it moves quickly, or at least it did all the times I've gone over it. I plan for it to move quickly. Uh, first of all, what does it mean to be all in? What does it mean to be all in for the gospel and for the city? Number two, why are we not motivated? What doesn't motivate us? And then number three, what does motivate us? What is it? What doesn't motivate us? And what does motivate us? First of all, <clears throat> what does it mean to be all in for the gospel and the city? Number one, it means to share the gospel publicly. To share the gospel publicly. Isaiah says in chapter 58 in verse one, or God told Isaiah, shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. God gave Isaiah a very public ministry 2,500 years ago. His calling was to publicly declare God's message 
to God's people. Sometimes Isaiah is called the gospel of the Old Testament. These aren't in your notes, but if you want to write them down. Isaiah 61 in verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to proclaim the good news. Jesus quoted Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, and Jesus translates the good news as gospel. That is the good news. In Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah gives us the most detailed description of Jesus's crucifixion anywhere in the Old Testament. Maybe second to it might be Psalm 22. But in Isaiah 53, he gets very specific about how Jesus will suffer. He'll be rejected. He'll be beaten. He'll be pierced. He'll die for our sins. And Jesus will rise from the grave. This is the message that God has called us to proclaim to the city of Charleston. If you were to boil all down, what are we here for? Why has God left us here and not taken us to heaven? It's so that we can give the gospel to the people around us, starting with our neighbors in and around the Canal Valley, or what we call Metro Charleston. And think about it with me for a minute. If a city's hurting like our city is hurting, is there any better message than the message of the gospel? You say, well, wait a minute, if people are hurting, do they really want like a religious message? We're going to talk about their physical pain in just a minute. But I remember once when I was in seminary, I worked with a guy. uh, He said, Matt, I just don't believe that God really cares about my pain. I don't believe God cares about my pain. It's like there's this whole religious world. Even if God is real, he kind of stands aloof. I don't believe God cares about my pain. And it was a few days before Good Friday. And I don't always have the right answers, but the Spirit of God put it on my heart to tell him, man, that's exactly what Good Friday is all about. God stepped into our pain. He he stepped into our suffering and took on our death so that we might have his life. God's called us to give the gospel. Now, we're not going to do it the same way Isaiah did it. I just read a verse a moment ago that says, Isaiah lifted up his voice and proclaimed. Maybe there's a few of you in here that have done street preaching sometime in the past. Uh, Anybody done that? I've done that. Anybody done street preaching? It is humiliating, (laughs) humiliating. I've done it in New York City. I've done it in Charleston. I've done it in several other places in North Carolina, in and around Charlotte. And really, I just feel like I'm hollering at people, right? Like, I don't think I'll ever do street preaching ever again because like no one stops and listens. Maybe I'm just not a good enough street preacher. Uh, We don't have to do it like Isaiah did it. We're not Old Testament prophets. But even though the method changes, the mission and the message never change. The mission and the methods never change. You be you and get the gospel to the people around you. I've been getting my hair cut at the same place for over 12 years. And uh, my barber's a great lady. I have the opportunity, some of you go to her. And even though I was gone for about five years in Louisville, when I came back, I had her cutting my hair again. And we've really started almost every time I get my hair cut now, talking about the gospel. She asks questions, gives me the opportunity to go through our 10 gospel words. And I'm really, really excited. But I told her the other day, I said, you know, I'm really going to make a deal with God. As long as he'll leave hair on my head, I will continue talking about the gospel. I don't think I have much time left on that deal, but that's what I'm working towards. So to be all in means to share the gospel publicly. Number two, to seek God eagerly. To seek God eagerly. Verse two, for day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways 
as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Now, if you were to boil verse two all the way down, it boils down to two things. They were reading their Bibles and they were praying. They were reading their Bibles and they were praying. And God doesn't rebuke them for doing that. We're gonna see in a few minutes that God challenges them to change their motives, to do it for the right reasons, but God is excited. They're reading their Bible, they're learning the scriptures as it's read in their temple, but God tells us they were doing it for the wrong motives. Again, we'll mention that in a minute. I am so thankful for the way Bible-centered people are seeking the Lord. It's all around our church and not traditional ways. One of the ways many of you, hundreds of you now, are seeking the Lord is by diving deeply in God's word through our core classes. I love it. I hear all about it. Some of you come on Thursdays, Thursday mornings, Thursday afternoons, Thursday evenings. Uh, some of you come on just watch online because your schedule doesn't permit you to come on Thursdays. Um, I love hearing all the stories. We have another core class coming up this coming Friday. It's a one-night core class right here in the auditorium at 6.30 on creation and the fall. Let's go deeply in God's word because studying God's word is the primary way by which we seek the Lord. Also love the prayer that I'm hearing that's breaking out around our church. We have people that meet here, groups of friends, small groups, community groups that actually gather for prayer in our building throughout the week. And that's what we intended. One thing that came to my mind this week is I've not done a great job as your pastor letting you know how we do prayer at Bible Center. When I was growing up, we all met on Wednesday night and we all met as an entire church for one giant prayer meeting, or at least that's what they called it, but there was like 10 people, right? But we all met for, and none of the 10 people knew each other and it was like unspoken, unspoken, unspoken. And I was like, you know what? One day if I'm a senior pastor, I'm never going to do that, right? Because like no one really knows anybody. Now I say never, we probably will have larger groups of elder led prayer at some point in the future, but when I came to Bible Center, I was very clear. I want all of our prayer to be done, or the majority of our prayer to be done through our groups. Because I believe there's nothing like sitting and kneeling with people that you know and love and trust. People with whom you can be vulnerable. People that you've walked a little bit life with. And so we have prayer happening all around our church. And I would encourage you, if you're not yet in a group, let us help you find a group where you can pray and go deeply seeking the Lord. And if you're in a group that doesn't pray, please don't leave here today. Go to your Sunday group. If you're in a Sunday group, don't go to your Sunday group and, and wag your finger at the group leader saying, we don't pray enough, right? Please don't do that. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. But instead, volunteer. Say, hey, can I lead a prayer meeting or can I lead the prayer portion of our group? That's just a really neat way for us to seek the Lord together. Another way we're seeking the Lord as a church Mike John, the chairman of our elders, mentioned at the member meeting on Sunday night that we're in the process of a church of going deeply, wanting to go deeper in our doctrine. And he shared this with the members first, and I just want to give you a summary of what he shared with them. We're on a two to three year journey. We're in no hurry. And hearing me say we're in no hurry, somebody write it down because you don't hear that very often. We are in no hurry as a church. We want to continue to go deeper, but we've noticed that we have a real need for a more robust, deeper doctrinal statement at our church. 
Our current doctrinal statement has been revised multiple times since 1943. We believe the last time it was truly revised was in the mid-70s. And that was almost 50 years ago. And it's a great doctrinal statement, but we're just concerned there's a lot that's been left out. One of our elders reminded us that 50 years ago, a lot more was understood about the Bible than is understood today. And so we're looking back to make sure that we leave nothing to the assumption or the imagination. For instance, the word gospel doesn't show up in our current doctrinal statement anywhere. We want to change that. There is only 11 words about Jesus in our current doctrinal statement. We believe there's a lot more that needs to be said in this day of biblical illiteracy. Our current doctrinal statement refers to Jesus as a little d deity instead of a big d deity. It says nowhere that he's co-equal with the Father. We want to change that because we believe that's what separates us from Mormonism or being a Jehovah's Witness. Our current statement mentions nothing of the timing of, or mentions the timing of creation, but it says nothing about who did the creating, why God created, or the importance of a literal Adam and Eve, and the importance of a literal Garden of Eden, and a literal sin. We believe that it's important for us to go deeper, to leave nothing to chance. We've identified 10 core doctrines that our current statement excludes. And then finally, one of our elders brought this up. We have the opportunity in front of us to create a doctrinal statement so robust, filled with the scriptures in the next two or three years, that it can actually become a Bible study and a primer for our children and our grandchildren. So we're in this process, right? We're, we're sharing the gospel publicly. We're desiring to seek God eagerly at all levels of our church. Number three, we're desiring to sacrifice for others radically, to sacrifice for others radically. Verse three, why have we fasted, they say? Have we, why have we humbled ourselves? Two questions there. We'll read the spots in a minute between them. But look with me in verses six and seven. God says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood." Number three, we desire to sacrifice radically. Now, when we think about fasting, fasting is just a form of sacrifice. There's a number of ways to fast and a number of ways to sacrifice. Fasting, we instantly think about food, which is the most common way to fast. Uh, for almost 2,000 years or at least 1,800 years, the church has, during this season, uh, practiced 40 days of sacrificing different food items, different pleasures. We call it, some denominations call it Lent. But sacrificing or fasting is not a way for us to make God like us more. Fasting is a way for us to say, I'm gonna do away with this or do without this for a certain period of time to remind myself how much I need God. That's why we fast. I remember the first time I tried to fast. I was like 17 years old, member of Cross Lanes Bible Church, or I was going to Cross Lanes Bible Church at the time. And we were gonna have a prayer meeting, an all day, 24 hour fast. So we didn't eat breakfast and we came to church that morning. But instead of going to Sunday lunch, we were gonna hang out and we were gonna fast. 
and we were going to pray all throughout the evening. And so I was 17, man. I really wanted to serve Jesus. I had never done this cool thing called fasting. I was ready. I just knew I couldn't do it. I could do it. And therein lied my problem, right? There was my problem. I knew I could do it. And so we're down there, we're praying. I remember after church, and man, the belly started growling, started growling. And we'd be praying, and all I could think about, McDonald's, if you know where Cross Lanes Bible Church is, McDonald's is right next door. I'm telling you, I could smell those burgers. I could smell them, right? Just kind of wafting into the basement. And I'm just, we're praying, and dear Lord, bless the hamburgers. I mean, bless the revival meeting, and, and Lord, bless missionaries. And all I could think about was the burgers. So, so I don't know if I've ever confessed this before. It's just good for the soul. I remember I, I got up, while everybody's on their knees, I got up as a 17-year-old boy. I walked across the street to McDonald's. I had two quarter pounders, a fry, a milkshake, and an apple turnover. I pounded it, right? Pounded it. And then I walked back into the room a few minutes later, make sure there wasn't anything on my mouth, and kneeled down and continued to pray with all the other people who were fasting. I have no idea what that has to do with the sermon, but yet to say, may the Lord help us not to do that, right? Don't do that. But here at Bible Center, we do want to sacrifice. And I say this as someone on the journey. For some of us, we have so wrapped up our lives that we've left such little margin for us to be able to sacrifice for other people. Sarah and I are in the process. We want to change that. I know I've talked to many of you. You want to change that. And so many of you this year have given so generously to the All-In Challenge. Pastor Lee is going to say more about it at the end of our service. But this year, not only have we desired to share the gospel and seek God, but we've sacrificed, you have sacrificed radically for us to be able to pay down our debt. Within one year, God has used you to pay over $2.1 million off the principle of our debt. We're thankful for that. That's not just something separate out here, but that's part of what we believe it means to be all in for Christ. So that's what it means. What doesn't motivate us? Before we talk about what does motivate us, what doesn't motivate us? Well, there's four things. Number one, getting God's attention. Getting God's attention doesn't motivate us. Verse three, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Verse four, they're talking to God here. Verse three, now verse four, you cannot fast, God says, as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. So we're not going all in. Our motivation isn't for, to get God's attention. We already have God's attention. Through Christ, we have all of God's attention that we're ever gonna need. So we're not trying to do these things. We're not sharing the gospel. We're not seeking God more. And we're not sacrificing so that God will say, hey, you know what? I like those people at Bible Center better than I like those people at that other church. That's not why we're doing it, right? We already have his attention. Number two, why else aren't we doing it? Well, we're not doing it to exploit our city's resources. Exploiting our city's resources. Verse three, yet on the day of your fasting... You do as you please and exploit all of your workers. So the people here, they were, they were using their community to expand their religion. To them, the community was nothing more than a host, right? They're the parasites. 
and they're just taking the resources from their community and the people in their community to make their religion that much bigger. God says, don't do that. At my previous church where I served in Kentucky, I can remember the elder meeting when it was like a movement of revival hit us. When, even though we didn't say it, we had just kind of come to this place. Our, our church had grown. We had four campuses. We came to the place that we realized that we saw Louisville as the means to build our empire. And it was always about what can we get more from the city to make us bigger and better and grow and start more, uh, more campuses and have more resources. And I remember the elder meeting when God so moved and he just like spoke to us about the importance of saying, wait a minute, God has us here to serve the city. It doesn't have the city here to serve us. That's a subtle shift, but that's what we're trying to emphasize at Bible Center. Charleston doesn't exist for us to get bigger and better. Actually, we exist to serve the city of Charleston, primarily through the gospel, yes, and a host of other ways that we'll see in a minute. So we're not trying to take from our city. We're trying to give to our city. Number three, we're not motivated by winning non-essential religious arguments. We're not motivated by winning non-essential religious arguments. Notice verse four. He says, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. Verse nine, similar thing. Verse nine, the last part of verse nine. Do away with the yoke of oppression and with the pointing finger and malicious talk. Have you ever noticed that we Christians are really, really good at arguing over non-essential things? Now, you may have never heard anybody do this, but a few of us have. Probably all of us have. I can remember in Bible college, there were guys I, th I really think would go to a fist fight over their end times charts and diagrams, right? They had the end times all mapped out. They knew exactly when Jesus was going to come. And there's like 30 different versions of it, by the way, but they were gonna fight over their version. Some of these dudes, I really believe that if Jesus comes back at a different time that's on their chart, they're gonna look at Jesus and say, hold up, hold up. This, this is not what my chart says, right? We're, Yes, I love talking about that, and I love discussing it, and I have charts, and you have charts, but we're not going to fight about it, right? Because none of us know every little detail for sure. I've heard Christians argue over the age of the earth. Now, I love discussing it, but do you know that the earth doesn't come with, a, with a, 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 a tag, an expiration tag, or when it was created? It doesn't come with a date. And so there's some scholars that say it's 6,000 years, and some say, no, it's actually 8,000 years, and some say it's 10,000 years, and, and some say different dates. And Christians will actually argue over that. We're not going to argue over that at Bible Center. We're just not. That's not who we are. We believe what the Bible says, but we're not going to win non-essential religious arguments. The number of dispensations now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, God bless you. I hope you don't know what I'm talking about. But I've seen guys argue over the number of dispensations in the Bible. Christians can argue over what's worldly and what's not worldly. They were doing this in the early church. Read Romans 14, 15, and 16. In the early church, they were arguing over what was worldly and not worldly. And Paul writes to them and says, look, you just be fully persuaded in your own mind. 
but don't try to push your opinions on the person sitting next to you, right? Because what, what we usually mean by worldly is anything that we prefer not to do, right? Somehow or another, we can like cover up the things that we think are worldly. I remember one guy talking about how a certain brand, to wear any kind of brand, if you wear any kind of brand on your clothing, it's worldly. And he's driving a big old Ford truck. It's like, hey, what's that blue oval, right? I love Ford, by the way. But let's just be careful when we're just throwing stones at one another and arguing over non-essential religious things. Let's be careful what we post on Facebook. Man, I'm telling you, we Christians, we can shoot our own wounded. Let's be careful the letters that we send, the passive-aggressive, sharp emails that we send. God has much more to say about being irritable and harsh and unforgiving and contentious and gossiping and divisive than he does about the color of shirt you wear or the style of music the person next to you enjoys. We're just not going to be motivated by that. That's not who we are. You know that. That's not part of our history. So we're not motivated by those four things. As we finish, what are we motivated by? You've been waiting on pins and needles for, for the, oh, there's, there's a fourth one. Maintaining a religious facade. I forgot to say that. Maintaining a religious facade. We see that in verse five. So those are the four things. But why are we motivated to go all in? There's four more things. Number one, what drives us? First of all, the people in our city are hurting physically. The people in our city are hurting physically. Look with me in verse six. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Here in verse six and seven, we see five different ways the people were hurting. They were oppressed. There's all sorts of oppression that were possible. They were hungry. They needed food. They were poor wanderers. They didn't have houses. They were homeless. There were people who were naked. They didn't have clothes. And that last part of verse seven, I didn't miss, I didn't see it until I was studying this passage this week. I've never seen it before. It just stuck out to me. It says, and do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. In the Hebrew, that's a phrase that means fellow humans, fellow humanity. It means to treat the person next to you at least as a human. Right now, God says, love God, love your neighbor. But even if that's impossible or seems impossible, he says, at least let's treat one another like humans. Here in Charleston, there's people who are hurting badly. Per CNBC, West Virginia ranks 50th out of all the states in terms of now business and economy. 41 states in the United States grew in population last year. Only nine states declined. Number one of those in decline, as you know, was West Virginia with the highest drop in the country. The last time Kanawha County grew was 2012, and it only grew by 51 people, and it hasn't grown since. In our state, 
17.9% of our population, 17.9% live below the poverty line. Right now, in our state alone, one point whatever million, in our state alone, we have 6,899 children right now in foster care. That means we could fill up this auditorium six times, almost seven times, with the number of kids that no longer can live with their mom and dad. In January, Charleston identified 315 homeless individuals in Metro Charleston. And in 2017, there were 833 opioid overdose deaths in West Virginia. You say, well, Pastor Matt, I hear what you're saying, but doesn't God call us to minister to their spiritual needs? If I was writing Isaiah 58, I would not have put verse six and seven before verse eight. You see, verse eight in a minute is gonna talk about their spiritual needs. But God, we believe we're Bible-centered, right? We'll just believe the Bible, whatever the Bible says, any order that God wants to put it in, we won't cut and maneuver and paste. God says, be burdened for people's physical needs. Now, I've been amazed in 17 years of being a pastor, I've been amazed at how we as Christians can get around that. I heard somebody recently say, well, you know, church is about spiritual needs. Don't talk to me about meeting people's physical needs. Really? What did Jesus say? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, if you put clothes on somebody who needs clothes, it's as if you've put clothes on me. If you put food in somebody's belly who's hungry, it's as if you've put food in my belly. You say, but isn't our mission to produce disciples? Certainly it is. But let's not forget the classic, the quintessential discipleship passage is Matthew 28, 20. And it ends with, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Some of us learn through classroom settings. That's really the way I learn. But many others, many, far more others learn by actually taking their hand and showing them how to do it which is why we're involved in so many endeavors as a church family to meet the needs in our city. Number one, people in our city are in darkness physically, are hurting physically. Number two, people in our city are in darkness spiritually. People are in darkness spiritually. Verse eight, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. We need not say much about this, but it needs to be said. People are in spiritual darkness in the city of Charleston and in the entire Canal Valley. One Southern Baptist study recently concluded that there's only of the 186,000 people in the Canal County, 186,000, only 10,000 and some change are in church on Sunday mornings, evangelical churches. Now, even if it's twice that, even if that study is wrong, even if it's twice that, 20,000 out of 186,000 people, God invites us to take the gospel into the darkness. Number three, we're motivated by the fact that it's the only way to be healed ourselves. 
It's the only way to be healed ourselves. Notice verse eight. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Notice verse nine, the last part of verse nine. I just can't get these verses out of my head. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness. I didn't write this, okay? God wrote this. And your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in the sun-scorched land. He will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like the spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called a repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. From cover to cover in the Bible, I can find no promise of physical healing just because we pray. God tells us to pray. In his sovereign will, sometimes he he grants healing, but many times he doesn't grant healing. The truth is all of us are terminal, right? None of us are getting out of this alive. There's none of us are, right? Unless Jesus comes first. We're just not. We're all terminal. So I'm not saying that this passage definitely doesn't apply to physical healing. He's not saying if you'll start giving your life away, you're going to heal. Sometimes it goes the other way. Start giving your life away, things go badly. But there is a promise here for spiritual healing, emotional healing. Scholars believe psychological healing, social healing, even some financial healing. He is saying, you put me first in your life and watch the miracles that I perform. Now, I love you. I love you. I've been here three years. I hope God gives me 27 and plus more to go. But there are many of you, you struggle with this cloud of gloom, of always being mad at church or mad at the person sitting next to you or Nothing ever is good enough. And, and I know what happens, right? I've been in ministry long enough. You go to your group and your group, somebody starts complaining and then you start complaining and they start complaining. Next thing you know, man, you got this. You, God invites you. He says, if you will be healed, if you stop living for yourself, Stop the cesspool of gossip and division and anger and strife. And God says, look out around you and serve the people around you. And instantly, God says, the healing process will begin in your soul. If you give your life away, it will reignite your prayer life. It'll get your eyes off yourself. It'll cause you to love the God of the Bible not just to prove the details of the Bible, but to love the God of the Bible. You open your home to others. You'll write notes of encouragement and kindness and speak kind words because that's what healing looks like. Thomas and Melissa Harper sent me the kindest email a few weeks ago. 
And I asked them if, they could, if I could read it. I didn't ask if I could put their picture up here. So if you're in here, I'm sorry. I love you. I won't do it the next time. I'll just pray you'll forgive me. Um, but they did say I could read a portion of their email. So I'm, I'm doing that. Hi, Pastor Matt. I wanted to share with you our story of how we found Bible Center. Thomas and I moved to West Virginia 14 years ago. Before we moved here, we were involved in a much smaller Methodist church in Mississippi. That was the church the majority of my family went to. So we never tried out a larger church. I had all but sworn off large churches for fear that I wouldn't have personal feelings that you get in smaller churches. We struggled over the years with our faith and knew we desperately needed to find a church home here in West Virginia. In February 2017, we traveled home to Mississippi to visit family and was asked to go to church to see my cousin baptized. We left church that day and knew we needed to find a church home in Charleston. On our drive home, we tuned into several broadcasts from churches in the area. And once we turned on the broadcast for Bible Center, we couldn't wait until the next one. Now, they wrote this, and I'm gonna make a joke, right? They said, we listened to your sermons almost the nine-hour drive home. Sounds like purgatory, right? Like, like, (laughs) that's what my kids would say, right? Thanks for writing that, but we were in church that following Sunday, which happened to be the 75th anniversary Sunday. We attended the membership weekend in May and we put our applications in for membership. When we attended the membership weekend, others talked about their struggles of starting families. We were married for almost 10 years before God blessed us with our miracle child. We knew the struggle of infertility and pregnancy and loss. And so for the first time, I realized what my ministry would be. It would be to the people around me struggling in similar areas. Since then, my husband, Thomas, has volunteered to serve in base camp on Sunday mornings with the kids. And I've joined Michelle's team leading the homeless ministry. We love our church home. God will do that in us as we live for others. Number four, and lastly, it's the best way to feel that God is near. It's the best way to feel that God is near I struggled with this one for a little while. Look at verse nine with me. I really wrestled. I was trying to wrestle my way out of it, out of the, 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 certainly we can't use the word feel here. Verse nine, God says, then you will call and the Lord will answer. And then you will cry for help, cry, desperate word, cry for help. And he will say, here am I. As you look in the Bible, people who weren't aware of the presence of God really experienced some negative feelings. Joshua 1, 8 and 9. Joshua 1, 9. He says, Have not I commanded you, be strong in the Lord and be of good courage. Don't be afraid. Hundreds of times in the Bible, God says, Don't be afraid. I am here. Growing up in school, we heard people, the teachers would call roll, right? They'd say, You know, Mr. Eaton. Here, Mr. Friend, here, Mr. Griffith, here, right? You, you did that. Well, the idea behind this verse in verse nine is essentially, we know that God is always with us. He is always present. Our doctrine, the word of God teaches that. So I'm not saying that God comes away and moves closer. If you're on mission, serving others, that's not what I'm saying. God is everywhere present. He's always with his people. But God is saying, if we're not living on mission, living for others, it will seem as though he's not there. How true it is in my life. When I'm living for myself, 
Man, all of a sudden, I'm very present with myself, but God feels at times a million miles away. But when you're serving somebody, you're giving the gospel to your barber while she's giving you a mohawk, you feel the presence of God. It's like, man, you're here. And so it's, it's as if God is saying, hey, look, if you go on mission for me and you serve and pour yourself out with others, you'll say, God, and he'll say, here. Jesus, he'll say, here. Spirit, here. But if you live for yourself, and already you're trying to find ways to, to figure out why Isaiah 58 doesn't apply to you, then God is saying, you will say, God, and there'll just be silence because you're enough for yourself. But if you want to feel the presence of God, he says, pour your life out for others. Johnny Erickson Tata, who currently, by the way, is still in the hospital, she suffered a a major accident as a young lady and has been a quadriplegic since. In her booklet, Hope, The Best of Things, she's in the hospital right now for pneumonia. Pray for her, struggling with breast cancer on top of all of her other struggles. But I read this week in her book, The Best of Things. She says, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now I know that's not theologically correct, but I, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior holding his nail-pierced hands. I'll say, thank you, Jesus, and he'll know that I mean it because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings. I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said, in this world, we're going to have trouble because that's, that thing, that wheelchair was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, and the more I committed to serve you regardless, the harder I leaned on you. The harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the blessing and the bruising of that wheelchair. Then she writes, the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin in heaven and all of earth will join in the party. And at that point, Christ will open up our eyes to the great fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all we've ever experienced on earth. I love this. And when we're able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus will wipe away our tears. She says, I find it poignant that finally at the point when I have to use, I'm allowed to use my arms again and I'm able to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because God promises to wipe them away for me. On a radio program, she commented on this book, and she says, I always like to say it that way, that I hope I can take my wheelchair to heaven, and I'll turn to Jesus and say, Lord, do you see that wheelchair? You were right because you said in this world we would have trouble. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you for what you did through that wheelchair and calls me to depend on you in service. And now, she writes, I always like to say jokingly that I'm going to tell Jesus, you can send that wheelchair to hell if you want. <laughs> Joni, Johnny has gone all in for the gospel when she has far less physical ability than many of us had the first few years of our life. What does it mean for us to go all in for the gospel? It means to share the gospel publicly, to seek God eagerly, to sacrifice for others radically. 
Why are we not motivated? What doesn't motivate us? Well, getting God's attention doesn't motivate us. Exploiting our city's resources doesn't motivate us. Winning non-essential religious arguments and maintaining a religious facade, none of that motivates us. So why are we motivated to go all in? Because people in our city are hurting physically. People in our city are in darkness spiritually. It's the only way we're going to experience our own healing. And we will learn that God is there. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your people. And Father, I'm so excited for what you're doing in our church, the prayer meetings, the baptisms, people going deep in your word and study. God, may it continue. Lord, I love these people. And Lord, as one of them, I wish I could just just sit in this seat right now with them And under this prayer, recognize that I'm on the journey with them. Help us, Father, to go all in, to share the gospel with more people. Even if we get red in the face and our our palms get sweaty, help us to do it. God, I pray you'd help us to seek you eagerly in our private lives, and our public lives, to be praying with brothers and sisters, the people you've already put into our life, naturally. God, help us to continue and even go deeper in our prayer lives. And Father, I pray you would help us to sacrifice radically. God, I do not want to get to the end of my life having built my kingdom. And I know that's the desire of all of our believers here. We don't desire that. But God, help us to spend our lives building towards your kingdom. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.